Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Ilaria. And I'm Daphne. And today we are going to talk about something that is on all of our minds right now, which is COVID-19 and how it is spreading, how we can fight it, what our you know near future is going to look like. And so today we are chatting with Dr. Anne Ramoyne, who is a leading epidemiologist and expert in pandemics. She's a professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and Infectious Disease Division of the Geffen School of Medicine. She's also the director of the Center for Global and Immigrant Health and an internationally recognized expert on emerging infections, global health, surveillance systems and vaccination. I'm really excited to ask her tons of questions. And I think that you guys are going to find this one to be extra, extra interesting. Yeah, especially if you're someone who is very excited for that time when we can get back together I again. I hug and, all of and you guys again. To hug everybody. Everybody. I want to record with you I, in person. I know, ditto. And, you know, you're, you're, that's what drives my information seeking is I'm really eager to hear about how how are we on the right path and where are we getting um and and what can we be doing to speed that along um in a really healthy safe way so without further ado here's our conversation with Dr. Ann Ramoyne This is a my name is Anne Ramoyne. I'm a professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. I'm also the director of the UCLA Center for Global and Immigrant Health and the director of the UCLA DRC Health Research and Training Program. And I'm here in Los Angeles, and I'm also leading the um, a study of asymptomatic infection and immunity in healthcare workers and first responders in Los Angeles. I'm also leading a study looking at occupational exposures to COVID-19 and veterinarians and in animal health workers and working on several studies related to COVID uh, and vaccine hesitancy uh, and and uh, acceptability here in the United States and globally. So you're doing everything. Basically. <laughs> so basically, I'm you're just doing, working all the time. You're doing, you're doing everything. Is there is there a place we can follow you? Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, A Ramoyne. That's my Twitter handle. And also on uh, Instagram at Annie Ramoyne, A-N-N-I-E-R-I-M-O-I-N. What made you decide to be an epidemiologist? So I grew up here in Los Angeles and I was... Um, you know, a typical kid growing up in LA. I mean, and and I was not interested in science at all. In fact, my dad was a really well-known scientist. He was a medical geneticist. He was the chief of pediatrics, director of medical genetics at Cedars and just this, oh, wow. this real incredible person. And so of course I was really intimidated by science. I didn't want to be a scientist at all. And uh, I mean, I was like a cheerleader in high school. In college, I was an African history major and a music minor. I was a musician. I graduated from Middlebury and then I, I came home to LA and I worked in the music industry for a year. Oh, wow. Oh my and, gosh. And I thought, and and this was in the, in the early nineties. And I thought that what I would end up doing, because I had this interest in Africa, but I wasn't, it was just something that just spoke to me like deeply and 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 so that's why I did this this African history major. And so after being in the music industry for a little while, I was like, oh, this just it feels like living in spinal tap. It's not exactly what I <laughs> what I envisioned in my life. So I, I ended up going into the Peace Corps. 
Oh, wow. And, oh, wow. and um, I spoke French. And so I just by chance got put in this perfect public health program, the Guinea Worm Eradication Program. And basically, they sent me to, to West Africa to this little teeny country called Benin. And I lived in a tiny village with no electricity, no running water. They seconded me to UNICEF. Basically, they took these volunteers and had them work for UNICEF doing disease surveillance. They gave me like a motorcycle and, and I went out and did disease surveillance for two years going around to all these villages, teaching people how to filter their water and to be able to count disease. And, and, and it just resonated with me. So instead I thought when I went into Peace Corps, I would, it would help me get into law school. I would be like, I I really, I just didn't know what I was going to do, but I ended up just falling into public health. It was the perfect public health program. And then that led me to, instead of going to law school, I ended up going to get my master's in public health. And then I went from there to get to work for the World Health Organization for a couple of years and I got my PhD. So it was just this, this funny progression where I didn't, I mean, I thought I would end up in the, like the, the music entertainment industry or something else. And here I am as a scientist. My dad used to say, I spent my whole career <laughs> avoiding science like the plague. And then I became a scientist studying plagues. Studying the actual plague. That That's so funny. And now talk to us a little bit about the different pandemics that you've worked on, worked closely on that you've studied. So in terms of pandemics, so the pand, this is really the first pandemic in our lifetime. So the the last pandemic was the 1918 pandemic. But in terms of epidemics, I've been working on, I've worked on Ebola for many, many years. So basically, after I finished my PhD, um, I ended up working for NIH for several years. And I started setting up these research programs in, in African countries. And I started working in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2002. And so I started this huge research program that's, I mean, what well, started as a teeny little research program, became a huge research program. And we've been working on things like Ebola, monkeypox. We work on vaccine preventable diseases. So trying to get people vaccinated and understanding how many people are vaccinated just against regular you know, diseases like measles and polio and uh, tetanus and, and these things that we worry about here in the United States too. So I've been doing that, but then I've also been doing things like following hunters and people who are at the animal human interface and trying to see, well, what viruses are they getting exposed to, who gets infected, what are they? So um, one of the themes of my of my work has been preventing pandemics before they start. So, you know, kind of the, the whole idea that it's better to to avoid being in the situation that we are right now than to spend the money to to prevent it. And it's I always use the example, you know, my 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 late father-in-law always used to say it's better to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. How do you do that? What does that look like? What is preventing a pandemic or epidemic? What does that look like? Well, the the best way to do it is to is to invest in the research and the public health infrastructure to be able to detect these things beforehand because Epidemics are like wildfires, right? You want to stamp them out when they're just little sparks. You don't want to wait until they've started burning through lots of brush and becoming a huge wildfire that that it's very hard to, to extinguish. And so you need 
trained public health professionals. You need to have good disease surveillance on the ground. You need to be able to um, have the lab infrastructure in place and the testing in place and all of the diagnostics in place, all the things that you're, you know, to be able to detect what's going on first. You need your, your, your eyes and your ears on the ground and then the tools to detect it and then the ability to go respond to it. Now, I've been spending a you know, the vast majority of my career doing this in places like the Congo, you know, but, but here in the United States, we're learning it's the same problem. We didn't invest in our public health infrastructure. And so as a result, we're really paying the price. You know, it took us a long time to be able to, to get, um, testing up and running. It took us a really long time uh, to be able to get contact tracing and all these people who are trying to figure out, okay, this person is exposed to this person and this person gave it, gave it to this person. All of that has taken a very, very long time to be able to get in place. And so we're, it's, it's like having a house with a really poor foundation that, you know, it's sinking while you're trying to build on top of it. And that's kind of unfortunately where we are. I have several questions for you. And and part of me also wants to like write a movie script about your life pre-entry into the field that you're currently doing because it sounds extremely exotic and, and adventurous. And part of me wants to say romantic, even though I'm also sure like at the time there it was it seemed like crazier than romantic. But um, but my question for you was actually, do you feel like we are, you know, having been in sort of since March 12th, America has been heightened in its awareness of what we were severely deficient in in terms of preparedness to deal and confront with with a pandemic of, you know, of COVID's nature. Um, do you feel like we are in a better position now? Like, do you feel like we have set up the infrastructure that you talked about or the tracing that you talked about or the like any of the sort of systems that it sounds like people as expert as you are maybe were acutely aware of before the rest of us were like do you feel like we are better off now well i think that we will be better off you know we're still in this phase of trying to um to try and make up for for all the lack of investment for decades and you know there's been no administration that's that's really been able to make this a number one priority and under, you know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what happens, right? That, you know, you, you're trying to deal with education you're trying to deal with immediate concerns, immediate and, concerns. And so right, these right. kinds of things, uh, you know, oftentimes get, get put to the side. Like I, I, it's funny, I was just thinking about this. I, you know, cause this has been my, my, the work that I've been doing for so long. And I, I, I've been trying to raise money to be able to do this kind of work for so many years and doing things like doing, giving talks about preventing pandemics before they start and why it's so important. And, and I think when I was talking about this before, people would say, yeah, yeah, you know, that's super important, but you know, what about cancer and what about homelessness and what about, what about, I mean, things that are really important. And so it's trying to, to move these things up to the top of the list. And, you know, unfortunately we had to have a pandemic to bring this to the top of the list because there's so many competing things that people are worried about. And understandably so it's not that, that, that those things are wrong to focus on, but I think that people now realize is that it's like this too. And I was doing a event for, I think it was like the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. And we were talking about like the economics of this. And I think that that's when people all of a sudden are like, oh, okay, well, it's affecting our economy and it's affecting, it's, it affects so much more than just 
a couple of people or it affects it affects the, the global economy. It affects our national economy. It actually impacts everything else. It impacts homelessness. It impacts hunger. It impacts mm-hmm. learning. It impacts everything because when you when when something like this spirals out of control you know everything gets shut down and i just don't think that people really thought about it i always use the 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 example with with students you know it's like battlestar galactica their their tagline was this has all happened before and it'll happen again and and it's true i mean this is what we're we're dealing with what happened in the 1918 pandemic it's exactly the same story if anybody has read there's a book by John Barry called the the Great Influenza. It really described what happened in 1918, and it really is so similar. Even things like worrying about well Thanksgiving and Christmas, and were people going to get together, and people being a you know anti wearing masks, and all of these things. It just it all happened before in a very similar way a hundred years ago. So it's not that 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 we didn't have an example. I think that we just all thought that we were so much better off than than we actually are. Can you just like really quickly give an overview of what the uh, coming out of it of uh, of the Spanish flu was? Well, it was it, it. We had several waves of it, and you know, at that point, we didn't have vaccines. In fact, they they were developing vaccines back then, but they thought this was a bacterial infection, and so vaccines mm. that they had were not. Um, you know, and this certainly didn't have. We didn't have the science behind it to be able to 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 understand what what it was. But essentially it went through several waves. It went from, I think it started in, you know, the winter of 1918 and then through April, 1920 and about half of what 500 million people were infected. It was like a third of the world's population at the time. And it's, you know, the people are still trying to estimate exactly how many people died because we didn't have the, the record keeping back then, but it was somewhere between 20 and 50 million. But, you know, it could have been a lot more. We don't, we don't actually know for sure. But I think that the the thing that, that we have to remember is that this is not going to be the last pandemic we're going to, to have ever or either. And so we're going to be seeing this happen again. And so we do need to prepare for the future. Um, but I do think that we really do need to remember that that people really were um, divided in the country and they were, you know, not, you know, there was a lot of anti-science and a lot of fear, you know, the, the, the wearing face masks um, was, you know, there was a lot of resistance. There was this uh, anti-mask league of San Francisco, you know, so some of these, th- these themes were similar. And I, I hope that this time we spend a lot of time learning from, from our mistakes and learning from this and documenting it and remembering that blunt public health measures worked. Like we're, we're waiting for the, the science of vaccines to be able to, to, to save us this time and to pull us out of this, which it will. But there's so much we can do. Wearing masks, social distancing, the hand hygiene, you know, I know people kind of gloss out, you know, they get kind of, they glaze over when we talk about these things, you know, because we've been talking about it so much, but, but it's really true. We could be avoiding so much death, so much sickness if everybody just wore a mask and, and avoided social gatherings. It's hard to tell. 
other than those three things, because I sort of am looking at the next two months emotionally and saying, okay, this is going to be two months. We've been, we've been completely locked down since, since March. I've had a baby during that time. I mean, it's been an insane journey for everybody. So for, for me, I kind of emotionally, I'm looking at the next two months and saying, Hey, we're really going to hunker down. We're going to get even more than the more that we were doing. And, and then. I'm starting to get hopeful that things might look a little brighter, that the science is going to catch up. And, you know, for those who feel like a vaccine is the right choice for them, that they will be doing that. And there, there's options out there. Does that seem to you in terms of a timeline, like like a like a realistic one? So there, the, the timeline is going to look like this. We're, we're now we now have two vaccines that are being considered for emergency use authorizations. Um, and that's great news. There's great data on these on these vaccines so far. Um, and we'll learn more after they've been um, reviewed by the FDA and the CDC. And there'll be, you know, the data will be available for us to really look at and to see. These vaccines will then, over the next couple of, of weeks and, and months, be distributed to people, to healthcare workers and people who are at high risk. And then, you know, in probably sometime around March or April, it's going to start to become available to the general public. And so that's when we're going to start to see a really big difference. Now, I have a question about that because I've been, you know, researching everything and listening to absolutely everything about this unveiling of the vaccines. And for me, I I think I'm looking at it incorrectly, but I'm like, okay, there's a moment where everybody in, you know, December and January, all the first responders, and that can, I I read that that can include people working at like grocery stores and food factories. You know, first responders, we always think of as like firemen, but like, but it actually is everybody who's allowing a teachers, people who are allowing us to continue society. But then is there like a gap of people start or, or it's until March only those people can get vaccinated. And then all of a sudden there's going to be like, you know, the doors open and then everybody's, you know, it's a free for all. Then anyone can request one. Okay. So this is really good questions. Everybody has these questions right now and are trying to figure out exactly what this all means. So this list of who gets it and how is going to be determined by this committee on vaccines that's going to be meeting in the next week or so. And they're going to come up with a list. And then that list of people, and it's going to start with probably healthcare workers, first responders, and the first responders are still the healthcare workers. It's like the the firemen, you know, the emergency workers. But then after that, there's another category called essential workers. And those essential workers are the teachers, the grocery store workers, the, you know, there's a whole category of, you know, the food, people in the food industry. Um, Those people will be in that, that line. But, but before, probably before a lot of those essential workers, it'll be the elderly, the people who have um, immune deficiencies or things that, that actually will make them very likely to have a poor outcome. And then it'll be the general public. But right now there's, there's just not enough vaccine available at, at this point. So, so the vaccine has to be produced and then they're going to have to figure out how to distribute it equitably to people. Right. Because we also know that communities of color um, are, are having much more severe outcomes, more likely to die than, than other people. So, so it's going to be a, a whole list. And then after there's this recommendation by CDC and this, this committee on, on vaccines, it's the states that are actually going to distribute it. And, and it's going to take 
quite a bit to be able to get these these vaccines out and into people's arms. It's, you know, we always say vaccines are great, but vaccination, actually getting them into people's arms is the key. And there's a lot of work to be done to be able to do this. I mean, we we have distributed vaccines in this country for a very long time, but having a mass vaccination campaign like this is going to be quite a, a logistical feat to be able to pull off considering some of these vaccines require very, very deep freeze temperatures and just being able to get them to the right people. Uh, and and the, most of the, the, the two vaccines that are under consideration right now require two shots one month apart. So, so there's a lot to be done before it can, um, you know, before these vaccines will start to work. So, you know, that's, that's like short story, very long. Um, I'm trying to, to say that it's going to take time before people are actually able to, to benefit from these vaccines, but just getting them into these, into these vulnerable populations will make a very big difference right away because those people are the ones that, you know, we're, we're seeing death rates start to skyrocket people in ICUs, um, you know, the hospitals being overwhelmed. And that's one of the big issues that, that people say, well, so what if I get COVID-19? I mean, do you know, is it going to affect, you know, what are the chances of it affecting me so greatly if I'm younger, if I'm healthy, you know, why, why should I worry about it? And it's, it's, because first of all, we don't know the long-term effects. We're starting to even see there was just a report that came out about the fact that COVID-19 can cause brain damage in people, even asymptomatic people, heart problems. You know, it, it can cause a lot of things that we just don't know at this point um, what the long-term implications will be, but the hospital systems are going to get overwhelmed. They're already starting to get overwhelmed. And, and that's very serious because then it could mean if you have appendicitis, there's not going to be a bed in a hospital. If you have a car accident, if you have like anything, then you just don't have the the amount of healthcare. You don't have the the the, the people, and you don't have the facilities available to be able to take care of you. So so overwhelming the health system is a really big problem. My understanding was you um you I guess have done quite a bit of work with Ebola and the Ebola virus, and. I feel like I had read that it took something like seven years to create an Ebola vaccine. And I'm not even sure what the efficacy on that vaccine is. You would know much more than I am. I do. But um, does it give you any pause or any question that we you know, have been able to come up with some ideas for vaccines for COVID-19 so quickly? Well, so this this concept, the kind of vaccines that were that are currently being reviewed for these emergency use authorizations, these vaccines are new, are new type of vaccine, this mRNA vaccine, messenger RNA mm-hmm. vaccines. They had been long considered as a as a technology for for vaccines. And and then there are many using the traditional vaccine mechanisms as well. So Wait, can you break those apart? Yeah, just break those apart for us. Like, how is how is an mRNA vaccine different than the sort of the traditional polio vaccine or MMR vaccine or things that you've seen at the doctor's office before? The difference is um, that a new this this kind of mRNA or messenger RNA vaccines basically like gives instructions to our cells to make like um, you know a. a what this this spike protein, which is this 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 protein that's on the surface mm-hmm. of the virus, and basically it's 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 using your this like encoding um, to to trigger an immune response inside your body, and that immune response is going to produce antibodies. Um, now, other vaccines often use either a, a 
what we call an attenuated version of this of this virus. You know, so a, a, a you know kind of a, a less virulent piece of this virus, or a, you know something that doesn't actually cause symptoms, to trigger an immune response, um, or a live virus. Uh, to to trigger an immune response. So this is a, a just a new kind of technology that doesn't use uh, the live virus, um, and and so that's the that's the difference here. Um, but you know, just because there are no licensed mRNA vaccines, um, you know, researchers have been working and studying this kind of technology for decades. Um, you know, the reason that these are so interesting is because they can be developed in a laboratory using you know readily available materials and they it means that they can get scaled up really quickly making development of vaccines much faster than the kind of traditional the traditional vaccines and um you know they've been being studied for for a variety of of different viruses and even cancer um looking at how to be able to do this um so this is just a new this i mean while it's new it's not something that somebody just came up with this has been long um thought about as a as a vaccine mechanism and they're being held and i think what's really important to remember is that it i i think that people are are worried about the safety of the vaccines but these vaccines are being held to the same rigorous safety and effectiveness standards that all types of vaccines are being um, are are being held to, and and the reason I think that this they called this this project you know Operation Warp Speed, and I think that scares people because it's you know you're talking about this vaccine being developed so quickly. Um, but the reason it's called Operation Warp Speed is because what they've done is that they've invested. They, normally, it takes a, a while to develop these vaccines. It takes a while to do these kinds of studies. It takes a long time to be able to enroll people in these studies. But there's been so much funding, they've been able to enroll people much more quickly to get to the number of, of people that would give us an idea of do these vaccines work or do they not? Normally, it could take months or years to be able to get 30,000 people into a vaccine trial and it's a, but instead they're they're able to to do this much more quickly but the second piece of it is they've been able to what they call de-risk the um the 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 making of these vaccines um and what that means is that they've paid to have all of these vaccines um manufactured before they know if they work or not so normally you'd wait to see if the vaccine works and then you'd spend all this money um, manufacturing the vaccines, but here they've met, they've started this manufacturing process already, and so it's like the government has taken on the burden of 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 this, knowing that they're going to manufacture vaccines that don't work at all. They're going to throw those out. Mm-hmm. But does that does that make sense though? Like, do they ever would they ever make that level of investment and then throw them out, or would they just hope they work and maybe use them? <laughs> no, 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 no. That was the whole point. No, but that's what people are confused about. That's a really good yeah. question. That's why people are confused. Right. They're saying, well, you're making all these vaccines and we don't know if they work. Are you going to use them? The answer is they will absolutely not use them. They're just doing this because you have to. It takes months and months and months to be able to scale up vaccine production. So they're letting people scale up the vaccine production as fast as possible. And then the vaccines that don't work, they're not going to use. But this is how we are able to do this so quickly. And that's why it's called Operation Warp Speed is that they're just pushing away all the hurdles that would normally take years to be able to go through right. to be able to have 
vaccines that are safe and effective um, for use right away. And that's that's the that's the key. And I just think that, you know, scientists aren't very good at at communicating this kind of information to the public. And I think that that's been this big gap that scientists are good at speaking to each other at conferences and, you know, having these, these very, it's a different language. It's a different language. It's really a different language. And I think that, that that's one of the things that we're all having to learn how to do. And I think that we've not done a good job with many things, right? I mean, I think that that's why we have so much vaccine hesitancy in the United States as well. So this fear of vaccines in general, because people don't listen to people's concerns and find ways to be able to address them and talk about them in a way that is um, accessible to, to most people. Lots of people have very reasonable questions, but when, you know, as a scientist, you just say, oh, just don't, you don't worry about that. Just don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. Of course, people are going to get nervous. I mean, I've been dealing with this with things like Ebola for many years in places like the Congo, where, you know, we've been having to to roll out Ebola vaccines that were first under a compassionate use authorization. So that's kind of the same idea. It's that that the the data isn't there yet, but we're going to give it to people because the risk is so much greater um, of, of death from something like Ebola than, than from a vaccine. Um, and, and in places where people, you know, there's no education, there's a lot of suspicion and a lot of fear, um, you know, dealing with, with, with all of this. And, and I think that, that the lessons from working in places like, like the Congo actually are much more applicable here than we ever thought. I always think, you know, here in the United States, we always like think that we're so much more sophisticated and so much better and so much different and our problems are so much different. But, but I think we can learn a lot from how places like Congo, um, you know, they, they engage with the local population. They talk about their concerns. They really take community questions and and concerns into consideration and and start to build trust and i think that that's one of the things that we haven't had is really good trust between the scientific community and the 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 lay population it's been it's been very difficult and not having these kinds of conversations just like we're having right now you ask questions these are all good questions everybody should be able to question and and get answers to their concerns I think a lot of people have the sort of the conspiracy theory fears. Everybody's having conversations. Are you going to have the vaccine? You're not going to have the vaccine. Is this is this our way out? Is it not the way out? Um, Whereas, you know, before a lot of times, like especially I mean, everybody who's listening knows in the mom world, like you don't want to get onto the topic of vaccines because people either are like vaccinate your kids or my kids are in trouble or they're like, don't you tell me to vaccinate my kids because my kids are going to have something horrible happen to them from the vaccine. And so it has been a very off limits topic that makes everybody a little bit squeamish. But now, I mean, it's a topic that everybody's talking about. And and what I hear is, you know, some people are like, well, if I get such and such vaccine, I know I have a bad reaction to that. And everybody, everybody's body is different and I'll have a reaction to it. Or then there's people who are like, hey, if not everybody's going to get the vaccine, then it doesn't benefit all of us. Then there's people that believe in herd immunity. You should get the virus. And then, you know what? Tough luck, survival of the fittest. You didn't make it up so bad. You know what I mean? I mean, there's like, there's all these very interesting conversations that are going on. And, and again, it, it comes down to not trusting. I don't trust. I mean, I'm somebody, I vaccinate my kids. It still makes me nervous 
Not because I think that they're bad, because there's enough people talking at me from a certain direction that it makes me nervous. But but I do it because I that's what that's the choice. That's the choice that that I make. Now, I was talking with our children's pediatrician about where kids vaccination is going to come in this. And the fact that having a real test group on children is much, much more difficult. But what what does that look like? What does it look like for kids or or groups that are at you know higher risk or, or the people don't want to offer? Like, I don't want to offer one of my kids for, for a trial. Right. Okay. So the way that it's going to work with vaccination for kids uh, and pregnant women, actually, this is, this is actually, so kids and pregnant women are considered vulnerable populations. So kids and, and pregnant women are not going to get vaccinated first. They're going to get vaccinated later when there's more data on on them. So what'll happen is, is that the data on adults um, will continue to be collected. And then there will be studies done in in kids once we have a lot more data. It's the same thing for 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 pregnant women and children because they're considered vulnerable populations. And and this is always what happens in terms of vaccines, therapeutics, anything um, when it comes to, to to children is that you kind of have, you have a, a a much more rigorous um, and and long term studying that will be done. So I, my guess is that for children we will not start vaccinating until at least over the summer, if not into the fall, when there's so much more data available and data actually available on how it works in children's immune systems. Right now, neither vaccine has been studied in um, in, in small children. Um, and I believe it was the one of the two, I think it's a Pfizer vaccine actually did some studies in kids. I think it was started in age 12 and above, but um, for the youngest kids, there's, there's no data yet, but there will be data. We just don't have the data now. Um, and, and that's why it's not going to be offered to children at this point. But, you know, the other thing is that children, while there, it is not a zero risk scenario for kids, um, it is a lower risk for, for children. Right. And so I think that, um, you know, that the bigger concern, um, is how is, is protecting people who are really vulnerable to the serious disease or death. And, and so this kind of, you know, this goes into, well, what happens with schools and what, you know, it's, you know, we, we know that kids can get it. We know that kids can transmit it, but they don't transmit it as efficiently as adults. We, you know, we don't see, you know, we haven't seen huge outbreaks in the schools where, where kids have been in school, mm-hmm. but you worry about the teachers, right? And right. the the staff and the, the the bus drivers and the, you know, all of the people that are around the kids and how do you keep them safe? And so vaccinating the adults is going to be really important. You know, we, we, we're not there worrying about getting the, the kids vaccinated. I do worry about the long term, what you, what you were saying before, the long term effects of of, you know, if, if people who are asymptomatic can have, you know, very scary and long lasting or forever lasting effects from from this is would that be the same in children? Right. Um, and, and we just don't know. So right. I, I think that um, that that that's really, really important. But there was just I mean, it literally came out that we're, we're learning that there are neurological effects and that there's, you know, potentially things like headaches and fatigue and cognitive impairment, you know, that can occur in, um, you know, patients who've, who've had COVID-19, you know, now we're, it's like, we're learning about all these things that can actually impact, mm. um, impact people who've had it. And so I just think it's, 
this is why this is why I say to people, just be careful right now. It's it's better. It really it goes back to what I said before. It's easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. And so, doing whatever we can to hold on to make sure that that you know we don't get it, we don't pass it on to people that we know and love, and you know because it's just it's not worth it. Just just right. don't get it at this point. You're you're much better off, um, and and that just means holding on. It's like you said, take it a couple of months at a time, right? Think about what can I do right now not to get this virus, and what can I do to 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 prevent spreading it to to other people as well. And and that's where you know avoiding get-togethers making sure that that you're wearing a mask that you're that you're doing everything you can to just drive the number of cases down is just going to pay off in the long run as we learn more and as we um start getting these vaccines out to people who really need to get the vaccine mm-hmm. so now if you did already have the virus would there still be a need for you to have the vaccine how there's been a lot of I think at odds conversations about how much you know preserved immunity you have from having had the virus. Is there such a thing as a scale of protection? Like, can you have gotten it in a moderate case and you have moderate protection, major case, major protection? Like what, how does that all work? So these are again, really good questions. And so I think that the answer to that is that we probably are going to, um, want people who have been exposed to get uh, vaccinated. You know, we don't know how long immunity lasts. And and so it's probably going to be a, um, you know, a recommendation for, for people who've had it to get vaccinated, but they may not need to get vaccinated as soon as people who don't have it. You know, we're still trying to understand how long immunity lasts. And that's the other thing too with this vaccine. This vaccine may only protect for several months. Um, we don't know at this point how long the vaccine is going to provide immunity. And so it, it kind of goes back to, well, how long does immunity last from a natural infection? How long does immunity last from from vaccine? Um, and, and probably if you've had it, your immunity is going to wane just like most most things. And then um, you'll get a vaccine and it'll boost your immunity, just like if you've been vaccinated. If you had it and didn't feel your response was like outsized, that you couldn't handle getting it again, because that was something else people were talking about was like, oh, well, you've had it. Just because you've had it doesn't mean you can't get COVID again. Is there value in that discussion? Is there, is it is it possible to be reinfected you know with the same kind of strain or is it like the you know there was a whole conversation early on is like how how closely related is covid to the flu and the flu you get a new strain every year which is why even if you had the flu last last winter you can get it again this year is that how covid works is that you know the conversation that's being had here is that why people who have already had it are concerned that they could get it again and have it more virulently than they had it the first time we don't know but it is very possible that it could be something because we're seeing so many cases you know viruses naturally mutate um but because we're seeing so i mean you know we're seeing cases just skyrocket globally. We've now seen even in places like, um, I think it's in Denmark, where they've had the the mink farms, where we're seeing transmission yes. into animals and then out back to communities. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I've spent my whole entire career studying right. is these kind of diseases that are going back and forth between animals and humans. And so the, the, the worry with something like that is that you can see a lot more mutation. It goes from a human, it goes from an animal into a human and then back into an animal and then back into mm. a human. Or when you're starting to 
see um, lots of, of transmission between people. That's when you see lots of, of this viral chatter and a lot of, you know, the, the viruses have the opportunity to mutate. And in which case, then the vaccine might not be so effective. And so you need to be re considering the vaccine. So my guess is, is that over time, we may need, you know, there may be a yearly coronavirus vaccine that, that we're going to get. And, you know, the good news in something like that is once we really start establishing what this looks like, we may be able to have, um, you know, multiple strains of coronaviruses um, in these vaccines over time. And so we'll see what 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 it looks like. Um, but it's, it's very possible. The other question that you had was about, okay, well, well, if I had this before and it wasn't so bad, maybe if I get it again, it won't be so bad either. The jury is still out on all of this. And and um, in fact, so one of the studies that I'm leading at UCLA is a study of asymptomatic infection and immunity and in healthcare workers mm-hmm. and first responders and we're, for COVID-19. And so, you know, we're starting to see some of these reinfections and, you know, sometimes they're less severe, sometimes they're more severe. I would say reinfection right now is is fairly infrequent, but we just don't know, you know, as time goes on, how long that will be. You don't know if it's going to be more severe or less severe. Again, you know, I think it kind of depends upon your immune system, the Mm -hmm. way that you're infected. Um, You know, if you have like a big, you know, viral, a big dose of it versus like a less severe, you know, like if you're wearing a mask and, and, you know, you have like a, you know, less virus coming into your system. So I think that, that the jury is still out on all of that. And that's why I just say it's just holding on until we start really seeing this kind of vaccines out into the public is the, is the smartest thing that people can do really. And why, just because I'm so curious to learn a little bit more about that technology you were referencing for this vaccine, why has messenger RNA not been licensed before in other vaccines, even though it's been studied for a long time? Well, this is just the first time that we've gotten so far so quickly with this technology. Um, it, it didn't have anything to do with the safety. It was just the efficacy of the of the vaccine, um, you know, being actually effective in preventing something yet. So it's just because it's just we're this is this has been something that's been in the pipeline, been starting to be to be worked on, but we now, because it's so, it's this is technology that is very quickly adapted to a to a virus, and then very easily manufactured and kind of pushed through the system. Um, that, that we had an opportunity to move forward with it so quickly. But this has just been a, a concept that's been out there um, and and starting to be to be worked on. It just hadn't been pushed all the way we haven't had an opportunity we this is our this is our this is our opportunity covid came and this is the opportunity can you talk to us a little bit about um about sars and the and the connection or non-connection between these two coronaviruses i was in china back in 2002 2003 it, it was very scary but then it didn't turn into what this turned into and and why is that so these are these viruses are are related. They're from the they're they're genetically very closely related, um, and they're they're the same type of virus. But this virus just it's more transmissible than than the original SARS virus. So that's why we've just seen it spread all over the world so quickly. It's actually less deadly than the 
first SARS virus that we saw or the MERS virus, which is the other, it's the one that was in the Middle East that that we Mm -hmm. saw, neither of those viruses were as transmissible as this virus. And so that's what made this one, you know, it has like a, a big clinical spectrum from not you know, from very mild to very, very serious, very severe, but so much more transmissible, it's much harder to be able to control. Um, so I think that that's the, that's the, the, the big difference here. It's, it's the ability of this virus to transmit so easily from person to person that, that makes it so much scarier. But there are a lot of coronaviruses out there um, and, and many coronaviruses in animals, there are, you know, a, a certain number of, of coronavirus, less than 10 coronaviruses known in humans that, you know, that infect humans. But these virus, this particular one is so contagious, it just made it that much worse. What about masks? What There's a lot of different masks that are available right now. Um, what, uh, which are the best ones? Um, should we stay very far away from people we see just like, you know, with the, with the t-shirt li- up walking around like this? So masks, we've learned so much about masks over this, over the, the course of the, the last year of this pandemic. Um, so masks are the number one defense that we have against this virus right now. If everybody wore a mask, we would see so much less transmission. We'd see so much less severe disease. I mean, that that really, if everybody was wearing a mask, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now. But because people just are not listening um, and, and not wearing masks, we're seeing still incredible amount of transmission. So the best masks to wear are masks that are the, the, um, three ply masks that, you know, the surgical masks, these KN95s. If you're wearing a cloth mask, you want to make sure that it's three ply and that it is thick enough that, for example, if you took a, a, a match or a lighter or something, and you wanted to, you blew through that mask that you'd blow out that flame. Okay. If it's not thick enough to do that, it's not going to be good enough to be able to prevent spread of virus. So you want a mask that is made appropriately to do that. I like the disposable masks. I really do. I just think, you know, cloth masks, they can get dirty so quickly. Um, Then you have to worry about washing them and, you know, all the other stuff. So I just, I really prefer the, the, the disposable surgical masks for, for people, but you know, if you're going to wash your mask, then that's also fine, right? Just then, then have washable masks. That's no problem. I also recommend if you're going out in public, um, I mean, I, I know that it's, it's one of these things that people, you know, wear eye protection. We know that people that wear glasses are less likely to get COVID than, than people who don't wear glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, so wear a face mask and then wear glasses or, or face shield. I, I actually literally have one of these face shields right in front of me right here. I know this is a podcast, so you won't necessarily be able to see, you know, this is, this is what it comes down to, right? It, you might feel like an idiot at the time, mm-hmm. but you know, isn't that better than getting COVID? I yes. mean, it's, it's just, it's why not better safe than sorry. And exactly. I think that when you're, when you're talking about all these things that are important to people, I mean, that's, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about what, what you do to protect your family, don't you often say better safe than sorry? I mean, isn't that yeah. the, the, the whole thing that we think about when we, when we're yeah. thinking about how do we protect our families better safe than sorry. And, and there've been so many things that we've, that we've taken this, this, this 
stance on the fact that people are apologetic. I mean, even I, you know, I'm an epidemiologist that studies COVID. And sometimes when I go into places, I, I still feel self-conscious, mm-hmm. you know, wearing my face shield and my mask and, you know, going, it, it, it's natural that, that, that it's, it's a weird, um, you know, sense of, you know, you, you, you want to connect with people and you don't want to put people off. It's like a natural feeling that everybody has. And, and, but the bottom line is, is why, why, why not? What if, 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 and, and I say this to people all the time about, you know, if, even if you, if you have some doubt about how effective masks are, I mean, the data is showing us over and over again that masks do make a difference, but like, let's just say that a mask wasn't as effective as we all think it is. You know, if it even prevents it a little bit, wouldn't that be good enough to make a difference? You know, even if it could protect you from getting more severe disease, right. just why not? And and you did ask about the things like the t-shirt or whatever, yeah. you know, the, the, those kinds of, of, of like the t-shirts, et cetera, a bandana, it doesn't work as well because it's open at the bottom. Like one of these gaiters, these stretchy knit things is usually too thin to provide right. good um, kind of uh, protection. And then also the masks with the exhalation valves, those are not good because it can allow droplets to s- escape into the air. Um, and so, you know, those you want to make sure you don't use. And just the other thing I do want to say is like if you're wearing a mask, you know, I like the three ply better two ply at least. Um, it should cover your nose and your mouth without any kind of gaps. And it should have ear loops or ties so you can kind of adjust it. Um, and 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 I think, you know, having this kind of bendable border at the top really mm-hmm. helps. It helps you kind of mold it to your face. Um, and and so I think that that those things are are really important to 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 wear and just to be sure that you don't have gaps anywhere. It's going to protect you. We also learn that people who wear masks, you know, if for some reason you do get coronavirus, it's going to, it's very likely to be less severe because you're not getting that same kind of viral load just, you know, expelled at you. So I just think the other thing I think is really important to remember right now, you know, with all of these restrictions, we're having them in Los Angeles right now. Um, but, but, you know, we're seeing bigger restrictions everywhere and people say, well, but you know, I was able to get together with people earlier. Why can't I just do what I was doing? And the reason is, is it's less safe now than it was before. We have so much virus circulating right now in this country, wherever you are, that it is less safe today than it was before. So we have to change what we're doing and we have to, you know, you think here, I'm just going to use Los Angeles as a perfect example. So in two months ago, we assumed that one in 800 people had coronavirus kind of walking around in Los Angeles. And, and as of last week, it was one in 145 people. It's probably less, it's probably even one in a hundred people now considering Thanksgiving and the holidays and Mm -hmm. people traveling. So you think about the probability of you coming in contact with somebody who has coronavirus now, it's just off the charts. It's totally changed. And so we just have to be so careful as a result. Um, and, and it's not, again, this is not just about, 
you um, or about me. It's about, you know, if you get it and you spread it to somebody else. And, and you know, you've seen these super spreader events where, you know, you know, all these people, they go to a wedding and it's not even somebody who was at that wedding that dies. It's somebody who was in contact with somebody else who was at that wedding that right. dies. And it's just so, so I think our responsibility to each other and to our communities, it's just, we have to really be, be thoughtful right now where, and, and just remember that the risk is worse. And I think that when we like it's it's the this time right now in our pandemic in this pandemic this is the time that the history books are going to be writing about you know with the massive amount of cases and the death and the everything that could be that, be, that could be completely avoided if everybody right. just did their part right now no that's that's very important thank you thank you so much we do ask you to tell us what your favorite thing is if I have to pick something, that's a really good question um, about what would be my favorite thing. Gosh, um, I mean, I would say being pandemic safe here um, and and picking something related to the to the to the pandemic um, and and how to keep people safe. I really like these face masks or these face shields. These mm-hmm. um, these mm-hmm. ones that you can wear like like glasses. Um, they're so comfortable. You forget that they're on. Um, I would definitely, I would definitely consider this as one of my favorite, um, ways to, um, stay safe. I just go on Amazon and, mm-hmm. and if you just Google face mat or face shield, cause if you wear this with a mask, it's going to provide extra protection. And there were studies that were shown in, I think there was a study in India that showed that, that healthcare workers that wore a mask and a face shield that nobody got COVID. Like we know mm. PPE works. So just like find it's, it's, it's any, um, just, you know, on, on Amazon, Google, Google these. I really, really like those a lot. Thank you for all that you do because um, it's greatly needed right now, as you know. Well, thank you for, for talking about such an important issue and asking such great questions. I think these are the kinds of questions that people need to hear and, and have asked and have somebody respond to. And, and I just think that these kinds of, of, mechanisms to get this information out is the way that people will feel more comfortable and really understand the issues. So you guys are doing a huge public service. I I really thank you for doing it. We're we're in it together. Well, thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Thanks for, thank you for answering our questions and thanks for taking the time. It was really helpful. Oh, any, any time and keep up the good work and everybody stay safe and stay well. Yay. All right, guys, that was very eye opening. I, I loved I loved her answers. I love I love this idea that, you know, scientists and, and non scientists, we speak two different languages. And I think that she's really, really doing us quite a service at taking the time. I love that she kept on saying to us, that's such a great question. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, my God, you make us feel like we're like in school. And so like smart, like, great, I've raised my hand and asked a good question. <sighs> um, but no, I, 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 I definitely learned a lot. And you know, we got to hunker down and we're almost there. We got to really, really take care of ourselves because we, we want to come out of this and we want all of our loved ones to come out of this on the other side. And, and then we can start rebuilding and, and doing it together. And now it's time for our favorite things. Now it's time for our favorite things. Yes. So today, my favorite thing is something called Pure Enrichment. And they've got like a lot of really cool products. So I'm not going to list just one in particular. We're going to link the whole the whole shebang. But it's really cool because they have everything 
from wipe warmers that I know I've talked about before, but they have one that like actually says like the degrees on it. They have um, different humidifiers. They have like lights to make you feel happier. They've got different kind of like heating blankets. It's like all like very kumbaya, super, super fun, like nice stuff. And I think, you know, especially if you guys are thinking about gifts that could, this can be a really like great gift idea. Um, so check out their products. They have, um, this one thing that's called a Himalayan salt lamp and ultrasonic oil diffuser. Oh my, I know it's a mouthful, really, <laughs> but it's just like really like beautiful, very, you know, all about relaxation, which I feel like we really need right now. So I recommend that you check them out. I love that. Well, um, if like me, one of your calming headspaces is the kitchen, which I feel like, look, on the tail end of, of Thanksgiving, it uh, does not feel quite as calm as it normally does for me to be in the kitchen. But um, it is the place that I go to just experiment and let loose and have fun and use up what's in my fridge and maybe try something new. And every single time I put a cooking IGTV up on my Instagram or share some of my cooking stories with you guys, uh, you ask me what cookware I'm using. And almost always, it is my cooking set from Caraway Home. Um, so I thought I would tell you guys about why I like their products and why. So basically, I bought the cookware set, their sort of starter set, which is a um, it's a big sauce pot. It's a saute pan. It's a fry pan. And it's a small sauce pot. And they're all ceramic coated. They're clean ceramic coated. So I think, you know, people back in the day would buy these sort of nonstick pans that were Teflon coated and things like that. And we obviously all know a lot about off-gassing now and some of the chemicals that can get into your food when nonstick coating, especially scratched nonstick coating, um, uh, you know, allows the release of those toxins when you heat the pan up. So Point number one is if you have scratched nonstick coated pans, throw them away immediately. You must, must, must get new pans. And that's why you should only use like silicone and soft topped uh, utensils, things like silicone or wood in nonstick pans. So you don't, you know, you limit the risk of them scratching. But ceramic coated pans are really cool because they are made from a non, you know, a non-toxic material and they are, you know, resistant to really high heats and they do have some of those same nonstick properties. And I just really like also the creamy white out, you know, exterior of the pans. They look really nice in my kitchen. That's the color I got. They do have them in other colors too. And yeah, basically they're the pans I use for almost everything. I use them for eggs and pancakes and all, you know, anything like that. The only thing I have found, I still like a cast iron skillet or a, um, or a, 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 uh, stainless skillet for are things like searing things like steaks and things like that. But for most of your general cooking needs, I'm a big fan. And that's what my favorite thing is this week. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. Please remember to share us with your friends and leave us a five-star review and a rating if you feel so inclined. It helps us big time. It really makes a difference um, in making sure that lots of people get to hear about us and, and hopefully join our wonderful, big, happy family mom brain extravaganza <laughs> and you guys know you can send us your questions anytime for mombrainpod at gmail.com and of course we're on all the social outlets as mombrain so do look us up and we will talk to you next week bye guys bye this is mombrain with Ilaria baldwin and daphne oz mombrain is a gallery media group original production